Welcome to the March 4th, 2021 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we will review a study that provides further evidence of poor prognosis in patients with multiple myeloma who have double-hit mutations targeting TP53. Examine the early use of bcr able one kinetics to predict the likelihood of treatment-free remission in patients with chronic myeloid leukemia receiving tyrosine kinase inhibitors. And learn more about a direct causative link between IL-18 with arrhythmias and myocardial fibrosis in sickle cell cardiomyopathy. Our first topic is a manuscript entitled DEL17P, without TP53 mutation, confers poor prognosis in intensively treated, newly diagnosed, multiple myeloma patients. Conducted by Jill Corre at the University Hospital in Toulouse and fellow colleagues in France. In the past decade, there has been tremendous progress in developing new treatments that have improved outcomes for patients with multiple myeloma. Unfortunately, however, the use of these novel drugs has not benefited many high-risk patients whose prognosis remains poor. It is therefore important to identify high-risk patients at diagnosis so that risk-adapted treatments are developed to address their high symptom burden and poor prognosis. The array of genetic abnormalities displayed by tumor plasma cells is now thought to play a major role in determining prognosis. In particular, deletion of part of chromosome 17, or DEL17P, containing the TP53 gene, is a well-established high-risk feature of multiple myeloma and is included in the current disease staging criteria. However, there is increasing evidence that not all patients with DEL17P are equally high-risk. For example, in some patients, the DEL17P abnormality is subclonal meaning that it is detected in only a fraction of the malignant cells. In a recent meta-analysis of European data, including more than 1,000 patients with DEL17P clones of variable size, it was concluded that a cutoff of 55 to 60 percent of the mutant clone could be used to identify the high-risk cohort of DEL17P patients. A second variable that may impact risk in myeloma patients with DEL17P is the presence of a mutation in the remaining TP53 allele, creating a double hit, since both copies of TP53 would therefore be non-functional. This double hit occurs in about one-third of patients with DEL17P, and some previous studies have suggested that it is primarily this group of myeloma patients who are at highest risk of failure. Here, the authors did a prospective study of a group of 121 patients presenting with DEL17P in more than 55% of their plasma cells and who were homogeneously treated by an intensive approach. They performed deep next-generation sequencing targeted on TP53 and then compared the outcome to a larger historical control population of 2,505 patients lacking DEL17P. Corey and colleagues confirmed that patients with a double hit indeed have the poorest prognosis, with a median survival of 36 months, but that the DEL17P alone conferred a poor outcome compared with the control cohort, who had a median survival of 52.8 months versus 152.2 months, respectively. In conclusion, the authors contend their study affirms extremely poor outcomes of patients displaying a TP53 double hit 
However, they also note that the Dell 17P alone is still a very high-risk feature, confirming its value as a prognostic indicator. In a commentary on this study entitled Deletion 17P, A Matter of Size and Number, Sonja Zwiegman and Niels van der Donk from the Vrije Universiteit Amsterdam in the Netherlands conclude that it may be important to add TP53 sequencing to the initial workup of Dell 17P myeloma patients in some situations. Although this may not be essential in many centers, since both single-hit and double-hit patients have a poor prognosis compared to TP53 wild-type patients, simple fish analysis may be sufficient. However, going forward, it will be important to note the pronounced clinical difference between outcomes in mono versus bi-allelic disease, and future clinical trials may need to fully assess TP53 status. Our next topic is a study entitled Early BCR-ABLE1 Kinetics are Predictive of Subsequent Achievement of Treatment-Free Remission in Chronic Myeloid Leukemia by Narani Shanmuganathan, Susan Bradford, and Timothy Hughes from the South Australia Health and Medical Research Institute in Adelaide, Australia, and colleagues. Sustained treatment-free remission, or TFR, defined as remaining off-tyrosine kinase inhibitor, or TKI therapy, in a major molecular response, is increasingly accepted as the ultimate therapeutic goal for patients diagnosed with chronic phase, chronic myeloid leukemia. To date, the published success rate of TFR attempts, that is TKI discontinuation in a stable deep molecular response, leads to sustained TFR in 40 to 65% of patients. Understanding the TFR biology may assist in determining why particular patients remain in a sustained TFR, whereas others experience molecular relapse. TKI discontinuation trials have investigated numerous parameters of patients attempting TFR, with the aim of identifying the key predictors of successful drug discontinuation to improve patient selection and maximize the chances of sustained TFR. In this study, Shanmuganathan and colleagues sought to explore the relationship between early response kinetics and sustained TFR. To achieve this, they performed a retrospective analysis of data from 386 chronic phase CML patients who received TKI therapy at two university hospitals in South Australia between January 2008 and October 2019. Chronic phase CML patients attempting TFR were evaluated to identify the impact of multiple variables on the probability of sustained TFR. Early molecular response dynamics were included, assessed by calculating the patient-specific halving time of BCR-ABLE1 transcript levels after commencing TKI therapy. Overall, 115 patients attempted TFR and had at least 12 months of follow-up. The probability of sustained TFR defined as remaining in major molecular response off TKI therapy for 12 months, was 55%. The time taken for the BCR-ABLE1 value to have was the strongest independent predictor of sustained TFR. Patients with a halving time in the shortest quartile of less than 9.35 days had a successful TFR of 80%, compared with only 4% if they had a halving time that was in the highest quartile of greater than 21.85 days. The E14A2 BCR-ABLE1 transcript type 
and duration of TKI exposure before attempting TFR were also independent predictors of sustained TFR. However, the BCR-ABLE-1 value measured at three months of TKI was not an independent predictor of sustained TFR. A more rapid initial BCR-ABLE-1 decline after commencing TKI also correlated with an increased likelihood of achieving TFR eligibility. The association between sustained TFR and the time taken for BCR-ABLE-1 to have after commencing TKI was validated using an independent data set. These results support the critical importance of the initial kinetics of BCR-ABLE-1 decline for long-term outcomes. In conclusion, the authors demonstrated that the initial rate of BCR-ABLE-1 decline, specifically measured as halving time, is a powerful predictor of sustained TFR. Understanding the extrinsic determinants and intrinsic biological factors that influence the rate of leukemic decline will be imperative to maximize the number of patients that can successfully attempt TFR. A model incorporating the initial rate of BCR-ABLE-1 halving time, transcript type, and duration of TKI exposure was developed to help physicians and patients make long-term clinical management decisions. However, this model was developed from a population that was predominantly treated with first-line imatinib, and refinement will likely occur with data from more patients who have been treated with one of the second-generation kinase inhibitors. Commentary provided by Aziz Nazha from the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio entitled, Should I Rock the Boat? A Difficult Question for Stopping Tyrosine Kinase Inhibitors in Chronic Myeloid Leukemia suggests several questions remain, including, first, what if the model predicted a longer time for the probability of achieving a TFR? Would switching to another TKI expedite the process? Second, should starting second-generation TKIs be the standard for patients who want to be eligible for TFR in a short time frame, given these patients may achieve lower levels of BCR-ABLE1 transcript at three months and could achieve a deep molecular response faster compared to imatinib? And finally, what about the patients who have multiple discontinuations of their therapy due to toxicity during their first 12 months? Should switching strategy be attempted early on to accelerate their chance of achieving a deep molecular response that would then qualify them for a TFR? Our last study today is a manuscript entitled IL-18 Mediates Sickle Cell Cardiomyopathy and Ventricular Arrhythmias by Akash Gupta from the University of Arizona in Tucson, Yudong Fei from Indiana University in Indianapolis, and colleagues. Despite significant progress in extending the lifespan of patients with sickle cell disease, or SCD, prognosis remains poor, and the average lifespan for this population remains in the 40s. Based on autopsy studies, the leading causes of premature death in SCD patients are acute chest syndrome, pulmonary hypertension, and sudden death. While the pathophysiology of acute chest syndrome and pulmonary hypertension is well characterized, the etiology of sudden death is less well understood, including potential contributions from arrhythmias leading to sudden cardiac death. There is considerable evidence that some sudden cardiac deaths in SCD are due to arrhythmias. Prior studies have reported increased QT dispersion and prolongation, and the presence of ventricular arrhythmias in some patients. Further, other prior studies have reported that increased QTC intervals are associated with higher levels of hemolysis, increased heme levels, and higher mortality.
Additionally, a significant subset of patients exhibits myocardial fibrosis and diastolic dysfunction, the latter representing an independent risk factor for mortality in sickle cell disease. Fibrosis is known to independently increase the risk of ventricular arrhythmias in patients with cardiomyopathy. Thus, while there are a number of potential cardiac abnormalities in SCD that are associated with a high risk of lethal arrhythmias, the underlying pathogenesis is less clear. In the current report, the authors used a humanized mouse model of SCD to study the development of cardiac structural abnormalities and the risk of arrhythmia. The authors previously reported that high cardiac levels of the IL-18 cytokine were associated with diastolic dysfunction in patients with sickle cell disease, and that IL-18 levels were increased in their mouse model. Similar to human patients with SCD, the mouse model of SCD was found to have increased cardiac fibrosis, prolonged action potential duration, higher ventricular tachycardia inducibility in vivo, higher cardiac NF-kappa-B phosphorylation, and higher circulating IL-18 levels, as well as reduced voltage-gated potassium channel expression, translating to reduced outward potassium current in isolated cardiomyocytes. IL-18 administration to isolated murine hearts resulted in ventricular tachycardias, originating from the right ventricle. Notably, sustained IL-18 inhibition via IL-18 binding protein resulted in decreased cardiac fibrosis and NF-kappa-B phosphorylation, improved diastolic function, normalized electrical remodeling, and attenuated IL-18-mediated ventricular tachycardia in SCD mice. The authors then went back to human patients with SCD and found that those patients with either myocardial fibrosis or increased QTC displayed greater IL-18 gene expression in peripheral blood mononuclear cells and that QTC duration strongly correlated with plasma IL-18 levels. Further, the level of IL-18 gene expression in peripheral blood mononuclear cells was higher in non-surviving compared to surviving subjects. The authors therefore conclude that IL-18 is highly likely to be a mediator of sickle cell cardiomyopathy and ventricular tachycardia, and suggest that IL-18 is a novel therapeutic target in SED patients at risk for sudden death. In a commentary on the study, Pavel Zhabayev and Gavin Udit from the University of Alberta in Canada agree that anti-IL-18 therapies have potential in treating cardiovascular diseases. They note that a trial of the safety and tolerability of an IL-18-blocking antibody was conducted, with early promising results suggesting that anti-IL-18 may have real therapeutic benefit in patients with SCD at risk for cardiac arrhythmias and adverse outcomes. They further note that the study results presented by Gupta and colleagues illustrate the important and complex relationship between the immune system and heart disease and the potential of targeting this relationship as novel therapies for heart disease in the future. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.